All right. <clears throat> so I have handwritten notes uh, tonight because I couldn't get in the office and I have my key. My sister's a thief. Um, but I only have two lines of notes because we're going to watch a movie. And uh, <clears throat> it's kind of like when a substitute teacher you know, comes to class, so we're going to do that. But I want to preface the movie before we watch it. So when, um, in 2007, when we were really pressing the Lord for something um, more than what we had, and um, we received this DVD, and actually it showed up in the mail. We had no idea who sent it to us, Um, still don't. But it was from an event that happened on uh, July 7th, 2007. And it happened at a thing called Leap of Faith Lambo. They had a big thing at uh, Lambo Field. And they played this video there. <clears throat> so we got it in the mail. And, you know, you get stuff mailed to you at a church all the time. And we're kind of like, eh, not so sure about this. And we ended up watching it. And um, at least, well, I guess I can speak for myself and for Pastor. We were so deeply convicted um, that it was, it was hard to not be offended because of, like, the depth of what it revealed. And um, so I have known that we are going to watch this again for quite a while. And I've been praying about it for over a year, when's the right time. And I never felt a release until... Um, after Cody shared with me some of the stuff that went on last Thursday, and I felt like the Lord said, now's the time. Um, and I tell you that because it's, um, it's convicting. It, uh, it deals with issues of the heart more deeply and thoroughly than probably anything else I've ever come across. Um, issues that they'll describe in there, such... Uh, such as like what, what would be referred to as humanism, in other words, confusing the second commandment and the first, where, you know, it's um, we love our neighbor before we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the effect that that has if it's not righted. Um, I th- didn't I show you some of this? Yeah. And, um, and then it, it deals with other issues like... Um, the true dealing with of the heart as it pertains to Jesus, you are, you're, you are, you are it. You are the end of all things. You are the Lord. Uh, and we know all those things doctrinally, theologically, and we believe them. But when God starts to address these issues of the heart, and, and now I have to live them, it's really hard. And so... <clears throat> I was really loath in some ways to watch this because I didn't, I knew there was going to be a great measure of conviction and I didn't want there to be undue offense if it could be avoided in any way because um, it is very difficult to watch and not take offense but rather to respond with repentance to the conviction. And so that's, you know, our... <clears throat> As we're born of God, we develop and cultivate a spirit of repentance. And a spirit of repentance just means that we're easier for God to deal with when he wants to correct and convict. 
But when we start out walking with God, we don't have that cultivated spirit of repentance most of the time. There's not a whole lot of brokenness that we usually have when we first come to the Lord. So when conviction comes, often it's met with offense from us rather than repentance. And I know this because I experienced it. I lived with a spirit of offense toward God for a long time because he was wanting to deal with issues and take me in directions that I didn't want to go. And this video, I'm, I'm, I watched it dozens of times. Um, and virtually every time I've watched it, I was just so convicted over the condition of my own heart, the selfishness. And, um, but I also know that when we watched it the first time around, we lost a lot of people to, to offense that just were not willing to look at these issues in their own heart and allow God to deal with them. So after at least a year of praying and asking the Lord, what's the right time for this? Um, I feel like this is the time. And so we're going to watch it here. It's 25 minutes long. We're going to watch do the same thing tomorrow night. Um, and uh, so it's not just for you guys. And, uh, and then I'll share a little bit after it's done. Jesus Christ is largely sleeping. It's like a great bedroom. And you have all the Christians in bed and they're all sleeping. And they're saying, please, don't wake me up. I want to sleep off. And of course, when God starts to operate a revival, people cannot sleep. You can't sleep in church. But the Spirit of God awakes the people. Look at the first verse of this 52nd chapter. Awake! Awake! Put on strength! Wake it up, you sleepy Christians! Awake, all that sleepers! Arise from the dead! Christ will give you life! Keep this in mind from an old man. There is no finality to the Christian life this side of eternity. We pray that some of us may go to our own funeral tonight and die to self and end all the failure and all the weakness. Why should a person come to the cross? Why should a person embrace death? Why should a person be willing to go in identification down to the cross and into the tomb and up again? I'll tell you why. Because it's the only way that God can get glory out of a human being. If I were to ask you tonight, you're saved. Do you say, yes, I'm saved? When? Oh, so-and-so preached, I got baptized. And are you saved? What are you saved from? Hell? Are you saved from bitterness? Are you saved from lust? Are you saved from cheating? Are you saved from lying? Are you saved from bad manners? Are you saved from rebelling against your parents? Come on, what are you saved from? Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, 
And there's no room for him in the inn. He got a bit older. There was no room in his family. His family turned on him. He went to the temple. No room in the temple. The temple turned on him. And when he died, there was no room to bury him. He died outside of the city. Well, why in God's name do you expect to be accepted everywhere? How is it the world couldn't get on with the holiest man that ever lived and it can get on with you and me? Are we compromised? Are we compromised? Are we no spiritual stature? Are we no righteousness that reflects on their corruption? Neither is from above is above all. You want to say to your Christians, don't go around apologizing for him. Don't go around worried because you can't make his doctrines fit in with what you've learned in school. All you learned in school was one fallen head instructing another fallen head. And you don't have to apologize for him. But as dear Dr. Tozer used to say, Len, you knew one thing about a man that was carrying a cross out of the city. You knew he wasn't coming back. Let's come to a altar and we go back the next week and we're as fascinated. We haven't spent half an hour with Jesus, but we'll stay two stinking hours in a movie house. And Paul says that's what the world is to me. It's a system of corruption and rottenness and vileness. It's anti-Christ from the world go. Is the world crucified to you tonight or does it fascinate you? Do we not need a very much greater conception of how tremendously valuable a true expression of the church is to the Lord? It's priceless. But the Lord give us more of this anguish for his church as a whole. Then it will be precious to him. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then it vanisheth. That world outside there is not waiting for a new definition of Christianity. It's waiting for a new demonstration of Christianity. Would I be out of line in order if I were to talk to you for a little while about utilitarian religion and expedient Christianity? And the question that you're going to ask yourself is, is God an end, or is he a means? And you have to decide very early in your Christian life whether you're viewing God as an end or a means. A more challenging question than this text. What is your life? The philosophy of the day became humanism. And you can define humanism this way. Humanism is a philosophical statement that declares the end of all being is the happiness of man. The, the reason for existence is man's happiness. Now according to humanism, salvation is simply a matter of getting all the happiness you can out of life. This group of my people, the fundamentalists, that say, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe in hell. We believe in heaven. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But remember, the atmosphere is that of humanism. And humanism says the chief end of being is the happiness of man. And so it wasn't long until we had this, that the fundamentalists knew each other because they said, we believe these things. They were men, for the most part, that had met God. But you see, it wasn't long until, having said, these are the things that establish us as fundamentalists, the second generation said, this is how we become a fundamentalist. Believe in the inspiration of the Bible, believe in the deity of Christ, believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and thereby become a fundamentalist. And so it wasn't long until it got to our generation, where the whole plan of salvation was to give intellectual assent to a few statements of doctrine. And a person was considered a Christian because he could say, uh-huh, at four or five places that he was asked to.
And if he knew where to say, uh-huh, someone would pat him on the back, shake his hand, smile broadly, and say, brother, you're safe. At what cost? And so it had gotten down to the place where salvation was nothing more than an essential scheme or a, a formula. And the end of this salvation was the happiness of man, because humanism has penetrated. And so if you were to analyze the fundamentalism in contrast to liberalism of a hundred years ago, as it developed, be like this. The liberal says the end of religion is to make man happy while he's alive. And the fundamentalist says the end of religion is to make man happy when he dies. We're still paddling on the edge of the ocean of the possibilities of grace. Put a holy dissatisfaction in us tonight. Until we find it something like this. Accept Jesus so you can go to heaven. You don't want to go to that old, filthy, nasty, burning hell when there's a beautiful heaven up there. Now come to Jesus so that you can go to heaven. And the appeal could be as much the selfishness as a couple of men sitting in a coffee shop deciding they're going to rob a bank to get something for nothing. It becomes so subtle that it goes everywhere. What is it? In essence, it's this. That this philosophical postulate that the end of all being is the happiness of man has been a sort of covered over with evangelical terms and biblical doctrine until God reigns in heaven for the happiness of man, Jesus Christ was incarnate for the happiness of man, all the angels exist in the whole, everything is for the happiness of man, and I submit to you that this is unchristian. Christianity says, the end of all being is the glory of God. Humanism says the end of all being is the happiness of man. This is the betrayal of the ages. And it's the betrayal in which we live. And I don't see how God can revive it. Until we come back to Christianity. Isn't man happy? Didn't God intend to make man happy? But as a byproduct, and not a prime product. Now I ask you, what is the philosophy of mission? What is the philosophy of evangelism? What is the philosophy of a Christian? If you'll ask me why I went to Africa, I'll tell you I went primarily to improve on the justice of God. I didn't think it was right for anybody to go to hell without a chance to be saved. And so I went to give poor sinners a chance to go to heaven. Now, I hadn't put it in so many words, but if you'll analyze what I've just told you, do you know what it is? It's humanism. That I was simply using the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means to improve upon human conditions of suffering and misery. And when I got to Africa, I discovered that they weren't poor, ignorant little heathen running around in the woods waiting for, looking for someone to tell them how to go to heaven. That they were monsters of iniquity. They were living in utter and total defiance of far more knowledge of God than I ever dreamed they had. They deserved hell because they utterly refused to walk in the light of their conscience and the light of the law written upon their heart and the testimony of nature and the truth they knew. And when I found that out, I assure you, I was so angry with God that one occasion in prayer I told him that it was a, a mighty little thing he'd done, sending me out there to reach these people that were waiting to be told how to go to heaven. When I got there, I found out they knew about heaven didn't want to go there. 
And that they were loved their sin and wanted to stay in it. I went out there motivated by humanism. I'd seen pictures of lepers. I'd seen pictures of ulcers. I'd seen pictures of native funerals. And I didn't want my fellow human beings to suffer in hell eternally after such a miserable existence on earth. But it was there in Africa that God began to tear through the overlay of this humanism. And it was that day in my bedroom with the door locked that I wrestled with God. For here was, was I was coming to grips with the fact that the people that I thought were ignorant and wanted to know how to go to heaven and were saying, someone come and teach us, actually didn't want to take time to talk with me or anybody else. They had no interest in the Bible and no interest in Christ. And they loved their sin and wanted to continue in it. And I was to the place at that time where I felt the whole thing was a sham and a mockery and I'd been sold a bill of goods. And I wanted to come home. And there alone in my bedroom, as I faced God honestly with what my heart felt, it seemed to me I heard him say, Yes, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The heathen are lost. And they're going to go to hell, not because they haven't heard the gospel. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners who love their sin. And because they deserve hell. But I didn't send you out there for them. I didn't send you out there for their sake. And I heard as clearly as I've ever heard, though it wasn't with physical voice, but it was the echo of truth of the ages finding its way into an open heart. I heard God say to my heart that day something like this. I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Don't I deserve those for whom I die? And it reversed it all and changed it all and righted it all. And I wasn't any longer working for my cup and ten shekels in a jar, but I was serving the living God. The more, longer I live, the more I find I don't know. Two years ago, God gave me a word for the new year. I don't go scattering through the book to find one. The, the Lord gave me a word, rejection. Great. Why did you repent? I'd like to see some people repent on biblical terms again. You see the difference? You see the difference? The difference is here's somebody trembling because he's going to be hurt in hell. And he has no sense of the enormity of his guilt. And no sense of the enormity of his crime. And no sense of his insult against deity. He's only trembling because his skin is about to be singed. And this is the difference between 20th century preaching and the preaching of John Wesley. Wesley was a preacher of righteousness that exalted the holiness of God. And when he would stand there with the two to three hour sermons that he was accustomed to deliver in the open air, and he would exalt the holiness of God and the law of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the wisdom of his requirements, and the 
the justice of his wrath and his anger, and then he would turn to sinners and tell them of the enormity of their crimes and their open rebellion and the treason and their anarchy. The power of God would so descend upon the company that on one occasion it is reliably reported that when the people dispersed, there were 1,800 people lying on the ground, utterly unconscious. Because they'd had a revelation of the holiness of God, and in the light of that, they'd seen the enormity of their sin. God had so penetrated their minds and hearts that they had fallen to the ground. It wasn't trying to convince good man that he was in trouble with a bad God, but that it was to convince bad men that they deserved the wrath and anger of a good God. Anything that you love more than you love Jesus Christ is an idol. Don't care what it is. I'm embarrassed to be part of the Church of Jesus Christ tonight, which is so totally, radically different from the New Testament. So impoverished, so blind, so powerless. I've come to this conclusion. There is a move of God in America today, but not amongst the unsaved. It's amongst the redeemed who are determined by the grace of God to be part of the bride. And to be part of the bride, you have to be divorced from everything in the world. We haven't witnessed somebody who's going to an eternal hell according to our theology, but we talked about some tribute to them. Whisper in my ear that Satan has moved you up. He says you're getting to be dangerous to his kingdom. He says you're spoiling his plans. You're thwarting his purposes. You're pulling down his strongholds. We're not pulling things out. We're building pretty little churches and little rooms for people to sit around. If Jesus came back, he wouldn't cleanse the temple. He cleansed the pulpit. We're in grave danger when we let our accomplishments become the ground of our confidence. Oh boy, how we want to be esteemed, how we want to be respected. How people should realize what precious gifts of the Spirit I've given. Do you know why they don't? Because you stink with pride, that's why. John died in 1791, converted at 35. Turn that round, it makes 53. Add them together, it makes 88. Because he was saved at 35, preached for 53 years. And you know what he left when he died? He left a handful of books, a shaded Geneva gown that he preached in all over England. Six silver spoons somebody gave him. Six pound notes, give one to each of the poor men that carry me to my grave. And that's all he left. Six pound notes, six silver spoons. A handful of books, a Geneva gown, and uh, something else. What was it, the other thing? Oh, I know, something else he left. The Methodist Church. He could have died as rich as your famous TV uh, preacher Sunday. Sure, he made money, and he built orphanages. Sure, he made money. He printed Bibles. Sure, he made money. He compiled with Charles the Methodist hymn book. And look at his orphanages. And he died worth about $30. He printed Bibles, he printed hymn books, he financed missionaries to go across the earth. That's the way to use your money. You think of the reward. Why in God's name do you think it says don't lay up treasure on earth? Lay up treasure in heaven. I'm tired of writing about revival. I'm tired of reading about revival. There are more lost people in the world tonight than ever in the history of the world. And God wants some men who are really drunk, intoxicated with the Spirit of God, who have a love life with the Lord Jesus, and He can ask anything of you and He'll do it.
I have talked with people that have no assurance of sin forgiven. They want to feel saved before they're willing to commit themselves to Christ. But I believe that the only ones whom God actually witnesses by His Spirit are born of Him are the people, whether they say it or not, that come to Jesus Christ and say something like this, Lord Jesus, I'm going to obey you and love you and serve you and do what you want me to do as long as I live, even if I go to hell at the end of the road, simply because you are worthy to be loved and obeyed and served, and I'm not trying to make a deal with you. But, oh, I know so many people that are trying to know the fullness of God so that they can use God. A young preacher came to me down in West Virginia, Huntington, West Virginia. <laughs> she said, Brother Rita, I've got a great church. We've got a wonderful Sunday school program. We've got a radio ministry. Growing. But I feel a personal need and a personal lack. I need to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. I need to be filled with the Spirit. And someone told me God done something for you. And I wonder if you could help me. <laughs> I looked at the fellow. You know what he looked like? Me. Just looked like me. I just saw in him everything that was in me. You thought I was going to say me before. No, listen, dear heart. If you've ever seen yourself, you'll know that you're never going to be anything else than you were. For in me and my flesh, there's no good thing. But like me. He was like a fellow driving up in a big Cadillac, you know, to someone standing at the filling station. Say, floor up, bud, with the highest octane you got. Well, that's the way it looked. He wanted power for his program. And God is not going to be a means to anyone's end. I said, I'm awfully sorry. I don't think I can help you. He said, why? I don't think you're ready. I said, well, suppose you consider yourself coming up with a Cadillac. You've talked about your program. You've talked about your radio. You've talked about your Sunday school and church. It's very good. You've done wonderfully well without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Chinese Christian said, you know, when he got back to China. What impressed you most about America? He said, the great things Americans can accomplish without God. And he'd accomplished a great deal, admittedly, without God. Now he's wanted something, power, to accomplish his ends even further. I said, no, no. You're, going, you're sitting behind the wheel and you're saying to God, give me power so I can go. You won't work, you've got to slide over. But I knew that rascal, because I knew me. I said, no, it'll never do. You've got to get in the back seat. Now, I could see him leaning over and grabbing the wheel. No, I said, it'll never do in the back seat. I said, before God will do anything for you, you know what you've got to do? I said, he said, what? I said, you've got to get out of the car, take the keys around, open up the trunk lid, hand the keys to the Lord Jesus, get inside the trunk, slam the lid down, whisper through the keyhole, Lord, look, fill her up with anything you want, and you drive. It's up to you from now And that's why so many people, you know, do not enter into the fullness of Christ. Because they want to become a Levite with ten shekels and a shirt. They've been serving Micah, but they think if they had the power of the Holy Ghost, they could serve the tribe of Dan. It'll never work. Never work. There's only one reason for God needing you. And that's to bring you to the place where, in repentance... You've been pardoned for his glory. And in victory, you've been brought to the place of death that he might reign. And in his fullness, Jesus Christ is able to live and walk in you. And your attitude is the attitude of the Lord himself who said, I can do nothing of myself. I can't speak of myself. I don't make plans for myself. My only reason for being is the glory of God 
in Jesus Christ. If I were to say to you, come to be saved so you can go to heaven. Come to the cross so that you can have joy and victory. Come to the fullness of the Spirit so that you can be satisfied. I'd be falling into the trap of humanism. I'm going to say to you, dear friend, if you're out here without Christ, you come to Jesus Christ and serve him as long as you live, whether you go to hell at the end of the way, because he's worthy. I say to you, Christian friend, you come to the cross and join him in union and death and enter into all the meaning of death to hell in order that he can have glory. I say to you, dear Christian, if you do not know the fullness of the Holy Ghost, come and present your body a living sacrifice and let him fill you so that he can have the purpose for his coming fulfilled in you and get glory through your life. It's not what you're going to get out of God. It's what he is going to get out of you. Let's be done once and for all with utilitarian Christianity that makes God a means instead of the glorious end that he is. Let's resign. Let's tell Micah we're through. We're no longer going to be his priest serving for ten shekels and a shirt. Let's tell the tribe of Dan we're through. And let's come and cast ourselves at the feet of the nail-pierced Son of God and tell him that we're going to obey him and love him and serve him as long as we live because he is worthy. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa bought to an island in the Atlantic and there to live and die without hearing of Christ. Two young Moravians heard about it. They sold themselves to the British planter and used the money they received from the sale for he paid no more than he would for any slave to pay their passage out to his island for he wouldn't even transport them. And as the ship left the river at Hamburg, left its pier in the river at Hamburg and was going out into the North Sea carried with the tide, the Moravians had come from Hernhut to see these two lads off in the early twenties never to return again, for this wasn't a four-year term. They'd sold themselves into lifetime slavery, simply that as slaves they could be as Christians where these others were. The families were there weeping, for they knew they'd never see them again. And they wondered why they were going and questioned the wisdom of it. And as the gap widened and the houses had been cast off and were being curled up there on the pier, and the young boys saw the widening gap, one lad with his arm linked through the arm of his fellow raised his hand and shouted across the gap the last words that were heard from them. They were these. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. So, uh, as you can see, it's, it's pretty intense, uh, <clears throat> and it, it addresses issues um, 
the, the issue of humanism, I think, is one of the most pervasive issues in American church today. Um, I don't think we're even conscious of how deep this thing goes. Um, I remember when we first heard this, I could not understand how going to other nations and uh, sharing the gospel with people was not for their sake. In that, that I couldn't understand how this wasn't the primary cause for ministry uh, in church and out of church. And what was what began to be exposed was I had come in, like he said, the context of life is that of humanism. And so I was born into this context where this is all you know, is that the reason we do all these things is for people to get saved, for people to get healed, for people to get delivered. And, and it had never really, up until that point, entered my thinking that, no, that the purpose for mission, the purpose for ministry, the purpose for all these things that we ask for is for, for God. That's what Jesus died to have, is a bride fully equipped uh, a bride walking in the fullness of what he intended her to have. Um, and it was the beginning of a long um, and very difficult um, process where everything in your heart is being ripped out and um, the ground is being tilled and, and God's having to retrain us how to think. And uh, so we're going to start down that path as a group. And um, it's called Leap of Faith Lambo. You can find it on YouTube. We've also got some DVDs laying around the church that we saved. I mean, we literally, mu- I must have given this to 50 people when it first came out because I was like, this is, this is the answer for the American church in so many ways of writing things. And you see what it does, I'm just going to talk about this for a couple minutes, this, this thing of humanism. What it does that we're not aware of is it limits the amount of love that we can offer. It limits the length to which we will go for another person. It's like he's talking about being in Africa, and I went through this when I worked downtown, where I'm, I'm downtown, and I'm praying for people. And, I mean, I was praying for numerous people every day. You know, hey, you're sick, or hey, you just shared something about your personal life, and let me pray for you. Let me, and I'm sharing... Uh, over and over and over and over about Jesus with people and what God can do for you. And no one wanted it. No one wanted it. I had people look at me like I had four heads. Uh, I had people look at me like I was possessed of the devil for telling them, you know, that Jesus loved them. And, and I could not figure this out. God, what is this? This is what this is all about, is, is giving them what they need and helping them find the answer and bringing healing to their pain, and, um, but I grew frustrated. I mean, I'd have hundreds of conversations that were fruitless. At least they were fruitless in regard to what I could see and in regard to these other people. What I didn't understand, though, was that God was shifting the why. Why do you do what you do? Well, it was for their sake. It was to see them come and spend eternity with Jesus. It was to see them brought into health and wholeness and a godly community. It was for the sake of taking lost souls out of eternal torment and bringing them into eternal life. 
And through this process of fruitless, ineffective ministry, God was writing my thinking and my heart in regard to how I thought of why I did what I did. And what had to change, or I would have given up and quit, which I tried to over and over and over, what had to change was why I did what I did. And why I did what I did had to become, Jesus, you paid for each one of these souls. You paid for me to walk in wholeness. You paid for me to walk in the fullness. So I have a responsibility to give you glory to walk in this fullness, or I'm not giving you the reward for which you suffered. And then, out of that, I have an obligation to go and attempt to get the reward of his suffering, those for whom he died, like he said in the video. But it's not for them, it's for him. Because when they reject you, that doesn't frustrate you because he's not, he's not discouraged when a person rejects you. He's delighted. And what it does is it writes everything in our hearts so that now we are suddenly able to receive from our Father. We can feel his enjoyment. We can feel his pleasure. We can feel him as he gets glory, overflowing that as a byproduct in bringing us joy. John Piper's saying is, um, man is most gratified as he is most gratified in God. Um, and that's at the core of biblical Christianity. And it's completely in opposition to humanistic Christianity, which says, we do this for the sake of others. And to put it in really simple terms, we've just flipped the second and first commandment and gotten them backwards. So we're attempting to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we're not first loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. When we have the first commandment first, the second commandment is the natural overflow. Because this is how we demonstrate love for God, and he gets glory, is as we go and attempt to get him that which he paid for. The other thing that it really addresses that was um, also uh, really challenging for me was I didn't like where I was. I didn't like what was going on in my life. Um, in the church, it was really weird. We were having the best, uh, the best time this church has ever had. There were amazing things happening. I mean, weekly there were people being healed, um, sometimes dozens. Um, and I had no joy in it because I did not like where God had me. And I wanted to go in a direction, and I believed that I should go in a direction. And it wasn't rebellion. I, I wanted to be in ministry, and I saw an ability to, to help a lot of people. And um, I didn't like where he wanted to take me and where he was leading me. And so there was this constant butting of heads with, with myself and God. I wasn't in rebellion, but I was miserable because I went along with what he wanted me to do, but I didn't trust him. And I wasn't willing to just say, God, whatever you want to do, I'll go, and I'll go wholehearted. And so it was through this same time in this process that he was writing that rebellious rebelliousness that's in all of us. You know, when when we were enemies of God, he died for us. Yeah, well, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still his enemies, he died for us. Enemy is a rebellious spirit. So each of us, that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion toward God. It's not, 
sins is the actions that we do because of our rebellion, but sin is the nature that's rebellious against God. And we get saved, and we get a new spirit, yeah? We get 100% of the Holy Spirit. We don't get like, oh, here's your down payment of 5% of the Holy Spirit, and if you're a really good Christian for the next six months, we'll give you another 3%, and then, you know, there's some really good interest rates on this, and, you know, compounding, and it it grows quick. That's not how it works. You get 100% of the Holy Spirit, but we don't experience 100% of the Holy Spirit because our minds are unrenewed yet. And that's where the difficulty comes for Christians is, well, shouldn't I already have the whole Holy Spirit? You absolutely do. But do you think that you're living in the fullness and that you're living as Christ lived? Wow, no, not exactly. Well, so which is it? Did you not get the whole Holy Spirit? Or, well, it's not an either or. It's a you got the Holy Spirit, but your mind must be renewed and the ways of sin must be cultivated out of us. And that's why he says, you know, we're being transformed from glory to glory into the likeness of Christ. So we're growing in the experience of God. We're becoming more like him continuously, even though we receive the whole Holy Spirit at the outset. So how do we grow that way? Well, like he said, very early in our Christian life, we have to make a decision as to who's going to be in charge of our Christian life. Is it going to be God, this is the way I think we should go. Bless this. Lord, I just, you know, I, feel, I really feel like I want to do this, and I just pray that, you know, uh, you be with me as we do it, and it bears fruit, and on and on and on. Or like Jesus, I do nothing that I don't see my Father doing. How many of us, like Jesus, would have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when he gets baptized by John? The Spirit comes on him in power and would have gone straight into ministry. Probably I would have. The Holy Spirit comes on Jesus when he gets baptized by John. If that would have been me, there's a really good chance that I would have been like, boom, ministry. Right? I have the Holy Spirit in power. I can heal the sick, cast out demons. I've been waiting 30 years for this moment. I just received the Spirit promised to me by the Father to bear fruit in ministry. I'm going into the most heavily populated area and I'm going to start doing miracles. Because people are going to become aware of my Father, and the kingdom is coming to earth, and there's going to be a lot of people getting saved. Right? But that wasn't what the Father was doing. So Jesus instead does nothing and allows the Spirit to lead him into the wilderness where he's tempted. That's uncanny. But he didn't have anything to prove to anyone except for, Father, what do you want me to do? And that's what has to be established in us. And I'll tell you, it's really hard. It's really hard to to be crucified. Um, Because we still have to be crucified. And there's nothing beautiful about crucifixion other than the resurrection. And it happens. As we're crucified, new life comes on the other side of that. But if we're not crucified to what I want... God, this is my will. God, this is what I think. This is how I say it should go down. This is the direction I want to go. As long as it's I want, that has to die. Now, is it to say that as the resurrection comes that you won't have desires? You should. You know, God puts desires in you. But those desires always have to be submitted to what do you want. Um, I'm an idea person. 
And um, I had, as I went through this crucifixion thing, every single thing I had to die and let go. And it was horrible. Um, Some of my friends could tell you some of the conversations that we had through that period. It was horrible. Because every dream, even the prophetic things that God had spoken to me, I had to let die. I'll never do that. God, whatever you want. Um, And I literally, in 2000, I guess it was 2011. Yeah, it was in mid-2011. I literally thought that I would work in a coffee shop uh, for my entire career of uh, 30 years and make about nine bucks an hour the entire time. That's what I had. I had so set my heart that God, I will die here because I thought I was going to. And that's what he brought me to. He made me die there where I thought this was the end of the road. I'd had hopes. I had dreams. I even tried to buy the place because I thought, well, if I'm called here for the rest of my life, at least I'll make more than $9 an hour if I can own it. That didn't work out, and I had come to the place where I said, God, I will stay here for the rest of my life, and that's what I thought was going to happen. It was about six months after that that he released me from it, but for that six-month period, it was the only period while I worked there that I had joy. The only way I can explain that was it was the first times in five and a half years that I was there that I was right with God in my heart about doing what he wanted me to do. So this is really hard. Crucifixion is it's brutal. But each of us gets crucified. And as we come through the resurrection side of it, as, as I was saying before, I'm an idea person. So I mean, oh my goodness, I probably have 50 new ideas every day. That's not an exaggeration, you know. Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a house. I'm, I'm in a, you know, I think in terms of investment and I'm just driving my wife crazy. But, um, but every one of these ideas is submitted to God. And I'll come up with ideas, and he'll be like, nope, that's not where I'm going. Cool, here's my next idea. Nope, I'm not going there. Sweet, I'm trying to start new businesses about every other week. And, um, but when he says no, or he, or he just blocks, or, okay, Lord, I'm not going to push it. Whatever you want to do. And that's what the crucifixion brings. And the resurrection behind it brings so much joy, so much life, um, there was a, we did a Q&A at the end of last semester, and someone said, if you could do anything different, what would it be? And I said, um, I would have tried to die quicker. I would have tried to die faster, my crucifixion, because I dragged it out. You know, my resistance to dying and to giving up what I wanted, it dragged out my crucifixion. Um, Jesus, do you remember when he was on the cross, he died immediately. Remember? They didn't know he was dead because normally it took hours and hours and hours for people to die. Why? Well, because they'd resist it. I mean, our will is tremendously powerful. That's what Romans 7 was really about, was the will before being born of the Spirit. But the human will is extremely powerful. And so when people don't want to die, they can fight that and fight that and fight that for a long time. And um, Jesus they had to, remember, they poked the spear in him to see if he was really dead because they couldn't believe that he had died so soon, so quickly. Why? Why did he die so soon? Because he knew that that crucifixion was his call. This death is what I'm called to do. And he had prophesied it to the disciples. And so he had agreed and cooperated with God, and it made his crucifixion more speedy. 
And if I had one thing that I would do differently, it would be that I wished that I hadn't resisted and I would have just gone quickly into the grave. And maybe that season could have lasted one year or two years instead of uh, half a decade. But I tell you that because I believe that for us as a group right now, we're being crucified in mass. That means as a whole, in a, as a big group, that, uh, that God is taking us through the death of our will so that he can birth his. So we're being crucified so that we can then be resurrected. But there is no resurrection without a crucifixion. I mean, that's, that's a biblical reality for all of us. And so the reason that I wanted to play this is that it really addresses some of the deep-lying issues of the human heart that have to be rooted out, that have to be crucified if we're ever to go forward and know the fullness of Christ in God. Um, so when we talk about pressing for more and asking God for more, we're doing it because that's what he paid for. He desired the fullness for us and his kingdom on the earth. That's what happened when Jesus was crucified. He took the title deed to earth back from Satan. He owns it. It's his place now, so his kingdom will be established in the earth. But personally, individually, he paid for us to have the fullness of Christ in God on the earth. So that's why we're pressing toward it, is God, I want you to have everything that you desire for me, in me, so that you can have glory. So this will definitely be something that you're going to have to chew on for a while um, and wrestle. And it's, it's not slow, but... Um, it's not, it's not an easy thing. I didn't mean to say it's not slow. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And, and he is worth it. And uh, so the only, this, is, this has got to be your story. This has got to be your crucifixion. And all I can do is help and say this is what I did wrong mostly. And um, there may be one or two things that I got right. But all I can tell you is, if you go with it, it's, it happens quicker. And I've watched it happen more quickly for people who were less stubborn than myself. And watched them be crucified, and it's grievous. And I will not try to comfort you in, in a sense of, oh, it's all okay. I will, I will help you try to die more quickly with you, and that's, that's comfort, but the point is to lead you to death, that you would be resurrected in Christ, and that is the most incredible thing that anyone could ever experience or witness when it happens to someone. So that's where I believe we're going as a church, and um, so I just encourage you guys, pray, pray, talk to the Lord about this and ask him to crucify you. Ask him to right the wrongs that are in your heart, and then go with it when he starts to, even though it's going to be painful. So I'm going to pray, and uh, and then we're going to we're going to go. 
Father, um, thank you for choosing us to go through this. Like Leonard Ravenhill, we are that group that are a part of the church that are determined by the grace of God to be a part of the bride. And we recognize that we need to be crucified to our, our will. Our will needs to be crucified and submitted to you. Father, there are so many things that are brought up uh, that are in our, in our hearts and our minds um, when you listen to these men speak. And uh, we trust you to deal with them. You are a better leader than we are followers, and so it's your commitment to us that will get us through this. But I ask you to be committed to us, be faithful to us to lead us to our own death that we might know the resurrection, that we might know the experience of having you be made manifest in us in the earth. That is what you paid for. Father, it's not to say that Uh, we're not saved and we don't have your spirit, but we acknowledge that there is more that we do not have. And the way that we get more is through our death and your life. And so we ask you to continue taking us down this path that you might have glory in us, that you might have the fullness in us that you dreamt of as you suffered on the cross. Jesus, thank you for the example that you gave us Thank you for your willingness to submit to the Father and to do only what the Father was doing. Thank you for uh, having a vision of what we would be. Thank you for having a desire of us knowing you. We love you. Lead us, Jesus. Lead us through this because we need you as our shepherd and we trust you. Amen.